Welcome to Epiphany. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, don't worry. Epiphany is the bit we always forget. It's the bit between Christmas and Lent. And we often, you know, we're so busy trying to get over Christmas and busy buying Easter eggs already, probably, that we don't think about Epiphany much. But Epiphany is a Greek word meaning revelation, or it means showing forth. It's the season that we have between Christmas and Lent when we try to understand what we've just celebrated. The idea that God appears in the world in the form of a human being. If you've been doing this for a while, been coming to church, then this could all seem a bit blasé. Well, it's pretty straightforward, isn't it? No, it's not at all. It's this extraordinary mystery. And the season of Epiphany gives us an opportunity to explore that. It sees the extraordinary in the ordinary. Because whilst your birth might have been extraordinary for you, certainly mine was for me, birth happens all the time. How is the extraordinary alive in the ordinary? That's what we're trying to do in, um, in the season of Epiphany. James Joyce, the great uh, Irish writer who... Uh, talked about epiphanies a great deal in his work, um, said that the epiphany is the moment when the soul of the commonest object seems to us radiant. The soul of the commonest object seems to us radiant. And he explained it later in an, in an interview as, an epiphany is to see the whatness of a thing, the whatness of it, the actual essence and truth of it. So... If epiphany is all about mystery and the ordinary becoming extraordinary, we've got a brilliant story for that. The story that Ho just read to us. We call them sometimes the three wise men, but we don't know if there were three. There are three gifts mentioned. I mean, there's a treasure chest mentioned. Every good story has a treasure, treasure chest in it, doesn't it? Or it did when I was a kid. This one's got treasure chest and they open it and it's got three gifts in it so we sometimes say there were three and we say they're men because well of course we always say that don't we because it must be because men ran the world and they couldn't be women the, the, the text is silent on their gender we just assume that they were men we have no idea where they came from and we don't no idea where they go after this because they disappear from the, the text and we say that they're wise but I reckon we ought to really double-check that. Because, you see, they go to Herod, the most dangerous and paranoid ruler of the ancient world. He killed anyone who plotted against him. He killed at least one of his wives and three of his sons, all of whom might have, might have even maybe thought about it. That's all they needed to do, to think that they would usurp him. Augustus, who was the Caesar at the time, who had appointed Herod to this role because... Herod's dad had been a favour of a favourite of Julius Caesar. Augustus was the adopted son uh, of um, of Julius Caesar, and he'd become the emperor. And but he once said about Herod that it would be safer to be Herod's pig than to be his son, because of course Jews didn't eat pigs, so you'd be all right. But if you were a son, so why go to the cruelest, most despotic ruler on the planet? and say, where is the child born king of the Jews? Who do they think they're talking to? Herod is the king of the Jews. 
Now, he, there's a bit of a dig here because he wasn't born king of the Jews. In fact, there was a whole series of complaints about whether Herod was a really a Jew or not. He was born south of the Jewish kingdoms and he was born in Edom or uh, he was an Edomite. And there was this sort of whole thing of, well, they're not really Jews, you know, they're not really one of us. And so Herod spent a lot of time trying to convince everyone that he was a good Roman. So he built enormous cities that sucked the goodness out of the countryside into these big cities. Caesarea Maritima, which you can still see parts of on the coast now. So he was trying to prove he was a good Roman, but he wanted to prove that he was a good Jew as well. So he rebuilt the temple and he built it as big as it's ever going to be. He built it to be what was probably the largest building in the world at the time. So they say, where's the child who was born king of the Jews? They already had a, Jew, a king and he was right there before them. So I'm not sure if it's a very wise thing to do. Because when Herod heard it, he was frightened. Of course he was frightened. If there's any chance of anyone usurping, you'd be frightened. Hence the killing of anyone who got in his way. And all of Jerusalem were frightened as well, because you always are. If there's ever a change of regime, impossible. I don't know if you have any friends in America at the moment, but as we move relentlessly towards the 7th of November um, and the uh, election of either Donald Trump, it seems, or Joe Biden, it seems. There's lots of people who are frightened to death of the arrival of another Trump presidency. So the, any kind of change is going to cause problems. And of course, Herod acts that way. He is just cruel. And if you read on in the story, you can see how cruel he gets. This is all happening in incredibly dangerous times. Israel and Palestine were in turmoil. I don't know if you've ever looked at the news lately. They were fighting, people were dying, people were being separated from their families. There were all kinds of things going on. There were revolts. There was a revolt just at the time Jesus was born when a group of terrorists overtook the city only six kilometers from where Jesus was born, uh, where Jesus lived in Nazareth. And the Romans came in and destroyed the city and enslaved hundreds and crucified hundreds, just around the corner from where Jesus lived. This was not, a, you know, we, have a, we had up here until the Christmas period was over, a little creche with the, the shepherds and sheep and we have the wise men and the shepherds at the same time, which don't ask me why we do that because nobody in the Bible does it, but we do it anyway. It all looks so peaceful and kind and gentle. There was nothing of the sort. And then we've got this story. It reads something like a, almost like a myth. That's why I put the Henry Ozawi Tanner painting in the order of service, because it looks like they're coming out of the blue mist of the world. They're, it, they're half myth, half reality. And this is how the story reads. It's the ordinary becoming the extraordinary. It's the work of God threaded through the world. This story kind of feels like a gold thread threaded through a dark time because they go to Herod and they say, where's the boy born king of the, the child born king of the Jews? And nothing happens to them. They, in fact, you know, Herod tries to uh, enlist them in his plot to find out who that is and get them killed, which he makes an attempt to do later on. 
But nothing happens to them. They go there, they see the child, they open their treasure chest, and then they disappear. It's like a golden thread running through the darkest of times. They're not touched at all. This is how epiphanies work. They just come out of nowhere. It's a moment of clarity. A lot of people have said that the light that Jesus said he was bringing into the world, particularly in the Gospel of John, is not light that you see, so much as light that you see by. Like we don't see the light of the sun because otherwise we'll burn our retinas out. What we see is everything else. It makes the world come alive. That's how epiphanies work. And the Magi here, these three people, if there were three, become a model. See, because you've got to be ready for an epiphany. You've got to be expecting that the extraordinary can break into the ordinary at any minute. Something expecting, expecting something to happen. They said, we observed your, his star at its rising. We observed his star at its rising. We've been paying attention. We've been expecting something extraordinary to happen. One of the terrible things about depression that many suffer is there's no expectation of joy and hope. Everything is grey. Today will be exactly like yesterday and tomorrow more of the same. It's a terrible disease to be stuck with. Epiphany is expecting the ordinary to break out into the extraordinary. And we never know where it's coming from. Where is the child born king of the Jews? We haven't a clue. I mean, we, we're expecting, we're open, we're ready for it, but we don't know where it comes from. Just as we don't know where the magi come from. They just appear and then disappear. Where is the child? Where is epiphany going to come in your life? I, I have no idea. It could happen any moment, and it ought to happen any moment, that the ordinary becomes extraordinary, the plain becomes alive. And we can miss them, of course. We could be so trapped in our own sense of the way the world is supposed to be, or the way the world is, that the idea that something mystical and extraordinary could break in on us Two people can be sitting at the beach watching the sun go down and one could be scrolling through social media and the other could be overwhelmed by the beauty and joy of it. And the next day they could reverse because that's the way we are as people. But we have to let it happen. The Magi were overwhelmed with joy. Epiphanies don't happen every minute. Otherwise we wouldn't be able to live. Imagine being overwhelmed with joy all the time. But a bit of it, every now and then, that changes the way we think about things, that makes us look at the world differently. If you've ever been really sick and then you get better, everything looks fantastic. The, the daylight looks great. The flowers look amazing. Food tastes great. Nothing has changed and everything has changed. They were overwhelmed with joy. And then it tells us this little thing which we, you know, we like to do in, in plays in primary school, but people get out things and stick jewels on them and make gold and frankincense. And that's great. And there's lots of things being written about what each of those gifts might mean. But we forget sometimes to read the bit where it says they knelt down 
and they paid him homage. They paid him homage. They got into it, we might use as a translation. They were present to it. They let it overwhelm them. They let it be in them. And then they opened up their treasure chest. They opened up who they were to it. And everything changed for them. And then we know nothing. Because that's how epiphanies work too. They happen to us and then they go away. And we can't even explain them to other people. Some years ago I was in a church and I didn't remember feeling particularly good or bad or very tired or anything. But I must have been worried about stuff. I don't know, I'm always worried about something. And in front of me was a little family and they had a baby who was a bit restless and they put the baby on one of the parents' shoulders and so the baby's face was right in front of my face, just maybe, you know, half a metre. And the baby looked up at me and gave me the most extraordinary smile. I just, and I just started weeping. And I decide, decided at that moment not to analyse it, not to think, well, maybe I was really tired and I was a bit weepy. And, no, just to accept it as a great moment of joy in my life. I never spoke to the parents. I never saw the child. I no, don't know anything other than that in that moment, the ordinary became extraordinary. And I don't know about you, but I am hungry for that all the time because there's a lot of ordinary in my life. There's a lot of predictable. There's a lot of what I think will always be the same, but it won't be. And if I'm open to it, epiphany can happen. And the radiance that is centred in everything comes alive. We're going to be trying to look at this all the way through the epiphany season. All the readings sort of go in that direction. So if you want to read ahead, you could. Amen.